Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. I'm Bobby. I am one of the pastors on the team at Commons, and it has been a minute since I have been in Inglewood. I missed you. That thing. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, whether you like it or not, I'm actually going to be here for the next three weeks. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't like it, but you can look forward to that. I do. Since I've been in Inglewood, the Raptors won their first ever NBA, what do we call it? A championship? I don't, was that what we call it? I'm not, I'm not really good at sports, you guys. But even I watched those games, so that's kind of like a sports miracle, like in and of itself. But even more importantly, the change that I have been most excited about since I've seen you is the addition of this little guy to our family. Oh, look at that. I didn't personally have a baby. I haven't been gone that long. I don't have kids, but my sister had a baby a few weeks ago, and his name is Drew. And as you can see, his big sister, Emery, is doing a-okay with the change. My niece follows my sister around all day saying, can I hold him? Can I hold him? Can I hold him now? She just cannot get enough of this little guy. So just thought I'd share that with you. It's so precious. But enough of like sports talk and even news about my life as an auntie. I am here in Inglewood to bring you the third in the trio of themes that you are engaging with us this spring. First you heard Jeremy talk about wealth, then you heard Scott talk about habit, and I am here to teach about change. And I love what my colleagues did with these other themes. Jeremy took what we immediately think about when we think about wealth, things like celebrity or status or possessions, and he expanded our imaginations. And Jer argued that wealth is about an expanded perspective. The person who has unlimited resources but also unlimited consumptive desire is no farther ahead than any of us who would have less. So the key to the good life isn't more, 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 unless you're eating popcorn, right? Like that is key to like more, more, more for sure. But that's not the key to the good life, more, more, more. It is to reflect on how we use our resources for the good of others in the world. And Scott got us thinking about habits, not as a simple program to ensure greater success, but as a way of expanding our lives so that we can actually be more gracious with ourselves. And in this grace, we are aware of how God works with us right where we are to build a life that is more whole. And I love how Scott has this way of pulling in important voices and research right into our spiritual lives. And one of Scott's invitations to us is to monitor, to actually count the moments of grace and goodness in our lives. This was profoundly helpful for me. Just sitting in a coffee shop this week, I took a moment to practice this, just to look around and to count these grace moments that are all around me. Because if I don't name them and see them and count them, I'm likely to miss them. And I noticed the safety and the play of children. Just walking back to school after a dip in the local pool. 
And I heard this conversation, of course I was kind of listening in, on friends just catching up after they hadn't seen each other for a long time. And I was so grateful for this moment of kindness of the barista at the coffee shop who liked my linen overalls, which is an outfit that my husband thinks is rather ridiculous. So, the world is truly full of goodness and grace, and when we count it, we can kind of hold it differently. If you missed any of these messages, you can of course catch them on the Commons podcast and our YouTube channel, but today we're talking about this new series on change. So a couple of months ago, when I was hanging out after the 7 p.m. service at our Kensington Parish, I mentioned to my friends Hadija and Blaine that I was working on this series of change. And Hadija, she got these bright eyes and this electric smile, and she said, I love change. And Blaine, her husband, looked more serious when he replied, some people hate change so much, they got rid of the penny. Groan, right? It's like a groan joke, but it's so good. I mean, I love that guy, he's so good for those jokes. But this moment with Hadija and Blaine, it highlights the spectrum of our relationship with change. We love change, we hate change, we resist change, we maybe seek change, we attend to change. Sometimes we get completely rocked by change. And today we're kicking off this series on change and as we just quiet ourselves for just a moment and pray together, I want to invite you and I encourage you to consider just one part of your life where things are changing for you. And we will hold that together as we pray. So please join me in prayer. Our loving God, you hold the world and everything in it. And we are mindful reflective even, that life is so full of change. Our bodies change, our relationships change, our work changes. We change our minds, we change our ways, we change our hearts. Jesus, you lived and breathed as we do, and you are intimate with the cycles of change, none of which shocks or surprises you. So, Spirit, help us to listen to you and to your invitations today, we pray. Amen. So, what grounds you in change? What stabilizes you and helps you to feel more secure in transitions? That is where we are going today. And in the last few years, I have been a keen student to change in very personal ways. I changed cities and homes and friendships. I changed my relationship status, my job, my ordination. I changed my proximity to family, to flatter land, to colder weather. I changed, but is it noticeable? And with all of these changes, am I still Bobby? The same Bobby I was three years ago, or five years ago, or even 10 years ago? Well, there is a long history to change in how we think about it. 
Back in the 500s BCE, in antiquity, the weeping philosopher Heraclides held that these three claims are true about change. Number one, all things are changing. Number two, life is like a river. One cannot step twice into the same river. And three, contradictory proportions are also true. Meaning, while one steps into the same river, other and other waters flow. But the river is not different, it is the same. And Heraclides implies that if the waters stop flowing, the river actually ceases to be. All of this to say, people have been thinking about change for a long, long time. Change is as simple and as complicated as its history. And we are turning to a section of the Hebrew scriptures to guide us through the series, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, two books in most of our Bibles, but one in biblical studies. And you don't even have to know a single thing about these books for us to begin, so let's start with some background. It begins as tragedy. I meant that to be quite dramatic. As I don't even know how to do it. As tragedy. So the people of Judah, an ancient people, God's holy people, they are torn from their land. Sacred treasures are stolen, the temple is destroyed, and loved ones are separated. And the book of Lamentations literally laments the fall of Jerusalem with these tragic words. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. It's tragic. And the works of kings and chronicles try to make sense of why it all happened. And the authors boil down the reason like this. They say, we were unfaithful to Yahweh and our rebellious ways nearly destroyed us. And this is the theology of immediate retribution, the belief that God is involved in the destruction that we suffer. And we do this with our tragedies all the time, right? We wonder, well, what did I do to deserve this? Why is God against me? And if only I could be better, if I could be more spiritual, then maybe I wouldn't be in such a big mess. Well, we're in ancient company when we look at our tragedies like this. And decades and decades pass before the exiles see a better day. And life is hard when we're hard on ourselves. And then this new day, it dawns. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, the king of what used to be Babylon, issues a decree. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you who want to go uh, go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Now, there is reason to be suspicious of these words if we're looking for the facts. 
There's a problem with the timeline of the kings named in the first chapters of Ezra. There are issues with the archaeological record when it comes to where these places existed. And the verses are written in Hebrew, not Aramaic, which means that this is not the original proclamation. Rather, this is what proclamation sounds like when it is reshaped to give you hope. So this literature, it isn't really about the facts, it's about the truth. The truth of what it is like to be the people of God at this time. The reality is that Cyrus was actually looking out for himself, for his own power, for his own empire. And by sending God's people back to Judah, he is actually beefing up the fringes of his empire. Judah would be between Cyrus and his enemies, the Egyptians. And that would be a pretty good buffer if Cyrus could just keep the people happy enough to stay on his side. It's interesting, isn't it? When God's people are used as these political pawns in global power moves. But the people in the first chapters of Ezra and Nehemiah are totally down to play their part. This is their ticket out of Dodge. This is their road back home. So they go. But who goes home? Well, in Ezra chapter 2, we have this list of names and numbers. And even a list like this tells a story. We've got 32 verses that are just a list of men. We've got four verses that name the priests and the Levites. We've got lists of musicians, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, right down to the descendants of Solomon and other VIPs. And then we read the priests the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns, along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. And this list is not the first of its kind. It's kind of like a hyperlink. Back in Exodus, when the people follow Moses out of slavery, they keep these lists of their names and their experiences too. It's found in Numbers, which I mean isn't a very sexy name for a book, but it's just a long list of names and numbers. But even without this catchy name, the list is sacred to the people. Because even as slaves and exiles, they don't forget who they are. They are women and men named and counted with a sacred identity intact, even if life is swirling and changing all around them. Because change has a way of undoing us, upending us, making us forget our identity. And these lists in the Bible all over the Hebrew scriptures through Abraham's bloodline and all over the New Testament in the expanding family of God, these lists, they matter. Holding on to who you are and who you are with has a profound way of grounding you in change. I mean, what would it feel like if we enact a practice of naming and kind of numbering those who are with us through a time of change. So maybe it's a friend who texts you to see how you are. And you just take a moment and you write her name down. 
Maybe it's a person who stops and really looks you in the eye to ask you how you're doing. Maybe you're not ready to talk about what's going on for you yet, but you know that he cares and he means well, so you take a moment and you write his name down. Maybe it's an experience, like you're standing in a crowd at a concert and you're singing along with strangers and tears are even running down your face. And you don't know any of these people around you, but you are singing the same song. So you count that experience as sacred, you take note, you write it down. And before you know it, you have this list of people and times that have shown up for you who have tried their best to say that, yes, you are loved and your identity is intact. Even in change, you can know that you belong. And the author of Ezra and Nehemiah tells us that soon after the people settle into their old homeland, they rebuild the altar. And the story has this way of saying, now that the people of God are home, they're going to be who they're meant to be. They're going to be their worshipers. And chapter 3 begins with these verses. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. And in antiquity, it is believed that the relationship between gods and humans is reciprocal. They are involved in each other. So to skip past offerings was to skip past devotion, and this could lead to disaster. Now, even if we don't live like this anymore, that if I miss going to church on one Sunday, I'm going to bring all kinds of disaster into my life and the life of my loved ones, there is still something for us here. The altar is about worship. It's the heart of the community. It's their offering and their best intentions. The exiles have come home. Maybe they are a little worse for wear. They're definitely facing more opposition than they ever expected with all kinds of mixed political motivations making their return actually possible. But their worship is there and it grounds them. Now, my relationship with worship has changed a lot in the course of my life. As a little Catholic kid, I tried to keep up with the sign of the cross and kneeling in the pew after Holy Communion. In Bible college, I was definitely into raised arms and altar calls. In my 30s, I fell in love with the contemplative tradition and with prayer books. And you know what? Worship is changing for me right now, all over again. But there is this thread through all of the changes in my worship that grounds me, and it is this wonder, a body bowed in prayer, a body raised to pray, a body quiet, just to make a little more space. The thing about worship is that worship will go with you wherever you go. Worship is there 
for exiles and slaves and returnees who gather as one in their holy city to rebuild an altar of wonder. And maybe they don't even know what it all means, but isn't that the point? Sacrifice, offering, bowing your head in prayer because you actually do not know it all. But you know that there is a charge to the cosmos and you want to get as close as possible to that source. The power of wonder to ground us in change. There's something to that. But it's not all starry-eyed worship and wonder. The people of God, they have work to do, so they get to work. They do deals with masons and carpenters. Cedar logs are hauled from Lebanon. Priests and governors, sons and fathers, they all join together to construct the house of God, the Beit HaElohim. But then something interesting happens. As they lay the temple foundation, the people pull out their priestly cymbals and trumpets and they sing together. Yahweh is good. Yahweh's love towards the people endures forever. And just as the song gets louder and more spirited, there are actually sniffles in the crowd. And then the sniffling turns to sobbing and the sobbing turns to weeping. And we read, that many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. The people are on the brink of something new, but they actually can't forget the old because every change involves a loss and loss is felt as grief. Whether you're starting fresh or forced to make a change that you resist, whether you start a new job or move to a new city or say goodbye to the love of your life, change is loss is grief. I live by this. And this ceremony of celebration also becomes a celebration and a ceremony with loss in it. And with the space for both, the people can be wholly present to life as it really is, full of endings and beginnings and endings and beginnings all over again. So don't go thinking that God is not near to you when you rebuild your temple. Cry over what is no more. But then, when you feel you're ready, get back to work. But the work of rebuilding, it is not easy. I mean, what deep work ever is. Ezra chapter 4, 5, and 6 tell the story of opposition. It turns out temples aren't rebuilt overnight. Now, the reality of the text is that chronology is not its primary concern, like, at all. 
up until this point, we assume we are just kind of cruising along in the narrative, right? One thing happens another. It's like you got the top down and the wind is in your hair and one event passes you by after another. But this next section actually shoves the reader forward about 50 years. Truly, it's kind of all over the place. And while this is really interesting for textual critics and historians, we're actually going to read the text theologically. We look for how the people of God see God in their own story. And some of my seminary profs wrote a book about the biblical history of Israel, and they write about it like this. Opposition soon rose to the rebuilding of the temple, and our sources suggest that this opposition, along with perhaps financial struggles and even the people's lack of interest, led to a cessation of building activity during the remainder of Cyrus's reign. It took the voices of the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to get the people back on track. The prophets say, it is God's will that we rebuild the temple, so let's get after it. But still, there is this opposition. There's this nearby governor in chapter 5 that writes a letter which says, look out, the people of Judah, they are rebuilding. And something about the governor's challenge focuses the people and they find their voice. They say, we are the servants of God, of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. They demand better from this governor, and they demand better from the king. And I actually really love this part, because they find their own voice. And it's wise, even just for a moment, and it guides them. In finding your own voice in a time of change, and even in a time where you feel opposition, it is so grounding, so very grounding. So I've been obsessed with a photo that I saw in the news a couple of months ago, taken at the beginning of the Sudan Revolution. And as peaceful protests are interrupted in Sudan with a brutal paramilitary crackdown right now, I continue to think about this image. And the grainy picture is taken on a phone, and there are rows and rows of screens in front of the camera. And all of the screens are pointed at this woman, Allah Salah, a protester standing on top of a car in the middle of a crowd. She is dressed in white, her arm is raised, her finger is pointed to the sky, and her mouth is open. Allah Salah stands to protest the 29-year dictatorship of Omar al-Bashir in Sudan. And a piece in McLean's magazine said that after Salah became famous for being in this picture, she traveled around Khartoum, reciting a revolutionary poem which goes, the bullet does not kill. What kills is the silence of people. And the writer of this piece in McLean's called the photo an almost religious portrait, and it is. Allah, Salah is so Jesus-y. She stands in a time of change. She speaks the truth to power, and she calls people to imagine a world where oppressors do not have their way. To imagine a world where change is possible when we join forces to work for the good of everybody. 
But let's not pretend that this effort is easy. It actually costs people around the world their very lives to demand justice. Here's an update on the picture of Alasala. I feel a bit emotional about this. By cartoonist Khalid Abaya. He made the image after the violence against protesters in Sudan on June the 3rd, where it's likely that over 100 people were killed for demanding that their government stands with the people in Sudan. In times of change and opposition, conflict and transformation, let's be really clear about what opposes us and find a way to speak up, even if your mouth is muffled, even if people try to shut you down, persist, and speak up. Maybe you're in opposition with yourself, and you need to speak words of affirmation and assurance just for you to hear. Maybe you're in opposition with someone who doesn't understand you, and you need to say, this is my truth, this is my truth, over and over again. Maybe you're in opposition with an unjust system, an abusive history, a, a toxic workplace, and you need to say enough. I demand better. Find your voice and speak up. And if you aren't sure what to say, find a voice that you trust who can speak for you and add your voice to that. The theological word that we speak for revolutionary change is resurrection. Your temple can fall and it can be rebuilt. Your country can collapse and it can be rebuilt. Your heart, it can break and it can be rebuilt. Eugene Peterson reminds us that we cannot do resurrection work on our own. Peterson writes, resurrection happens. We do not make it happen. Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. So remember that the spirit initiates all healing and resurrection, and we just get to join in. The people in Ezra and Nehemiah eventually get that temple built, and they celebrate. We read, for seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now, to be clear, the story is not squeaky clean. In a way, the people of God jump into bed with the politicians of their day to get this temple rebuilt, so go, people. But there is beauty here, too. Change is never perfect. Change is messy and complicated. And we get ourselves all turned around when we are in the thick of it. And God doesn't seem to mind that one bit. God will step in and work with us right where we are. And when I think back to the change that I've been in the thick of for the last few years, change that led me to leave a home that I love, a city I love, and friends I love, I've thought long and hard about questions like, am I still Bobby? Am I better for all of this change? Is this the life that I want to build for myself and for those around me? And I think the answer is mostly 
Yes. I left home to come home. I was alone, and now I have more love in my life than I could have ever dreamt for myself. And in small, private ways, I bow my head and build altars to say thank you. Sometimes you build an altar, and sometimes that altar, it builds you. We could say it like this. Sometimes you make a change, and sometimes the change, it makes you. We're not done with our journey, but we are grounded in God who works wonders with our imperfection. And even in the thick of change, this God will never cease to amaze. Please join me in prayer. Loving God, in whom all hearts are open and all desires known. Some of us love change. The newness, the freshness, the challenge in change. Some of us, we dread change, the disorientation, the fear, the insecurity that it brings. Jesus, won't you show us your way that leads from death to life, from fear to love, from insecurity to trust. And Holy Spirit, present with us now, Enter the places of change in our lives, and through it all, will you heal us of all that harms us. Amen.